Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform that is solving the talent crisis in the life sciences industry to help bring new therapies to patients faster. I'm excited to welcome Paula Sadaropoulos, chairman of the board of Insomo, as well as serving on the boards of Rally Bio and Unicure. Thanks so much for joining us today, Paula. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Raul. It's great to be here. I also want to say I'm, I'm a listener and I've enjoyed your podcast, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank um, you so much. Yeah, great to be here. Great. So Paula, to set the stage, would love to understand a bit about the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, it's been a, over a 30-year journey in biotech, spanning my early days as an engineer all the way through a CEO and now in, more in venture. Today, I am chairman of Ensoma and on the boards of several other companies and also working with 5AM Ventures as a strategic advisor. So a lot of my focus today is on new company creation, helping build executive teams, setting the strategy for new companies, and really working with them to grow and deliver on their mission. My career, though, started as an engineer, as I mentioned, I was a biochemical engineer coming out of uh, graduate school, focused on biotech. I mean, one of the things that drove me to biochemical engineering was because of the promise of, of biotech. I was actually a pre-dentistry, pre-med undergrad major at the time when I was an undergrad. And I, unfortunately, as I was looking ahead, I, I realized I would not be able to afford medical school. I was paying for college myself, working scholarships, all that. And I happened to have a friend who was doing a graduate degree in biochemical engineering. And I was at a crossroads and he said to me, you know, you're always in here peppering me with questions. You're so curious about this because this was in the you know mid to late eighties when biotech was really new. I spoke to his thesis advisor and I was hooked. And it was just that vision of what biotech, what new modalities could do to human health. And it answered that call that I had that I really wanted to be in some sort of medical field, helping people, but I could do it in a different path. <laughs> it was perhaps more practical getting a job faster out of school. So I switched into biochemical engineering, did all of my research work in cell culture and ended up designing bioreactors. And that is how I started my first job in an engineering design firm, happened to do that for Genzyme, who was a client, designed the first bioreactors that Cerazyme was launched out of. And then I eventually came in-house to Genzyme and started my first several years there in the engineering role. And then just because Genzyme was a place that allowed people to grow across different areas, I had the good fortune of being able to take on new roles that continuously challenging and reinvent myself in a sense over 20 years that I was at Genzyme. So I moved eventually more into the business side, but along the way, I ran clinical development programs, portfolios. I did business development. I did an M&A with an acquisition of a company. And then eventually my last several years there, I was the general manager of a few of our, our businesses. And I had the opportunity to cut across rare disease, cardiovascular, renal transplants. So many of the business units there. And my training, I would say 
to become eventually a CEO really came from Genzyme. The general manager experience there really set me and many others. And if you look across the industry, how many CEOs have come out of Genzyme? Many of them were general managers, either of business units or countries where at Genzyme, we were really held accountable to run our business like a mini CEO, full accountability from research through development, through commercial, global P&L, traveling around the world to be in the markets where we were accountable for. And, and it really was that training round that I think pushed me to where I, I, I have been you know, later in my career. From Genzyme, once we were acquired, I stayed two years because we were in the middle of a drug approval. And once we were approved, I left and wanted to get more into an entrepreneurial environment. I had that bug from the early days of Genzyme. When I started Genzyme, we were small, felt entrepreneurial, and being in a 100,000-person company was just not in my DNA. So from there, I, I went to Moderna. It was in the early days of Moderna. I was on the executive team there. Um, and it was well before, uh, you know, COVID was a thing. Uh, I was more responsible for our cardiovascular and our rare disease business, as well as our, as our strategic alliances. And then from there, had the opportunity to start a company and became the founding CEO of Exia Therapeutics, which was spun out of Ionis Pharmaceuticals and started the company with four drugs from Ionis that were in development brought that company from employee number one to about uh, a little less than 300 people in 13 countries with two drugs that were approved, rare disease drugs that were approved. And you know, the journey of taking a company public, it was a great experience and a lot of learning. And then uh, from there is when I've really pivoted now to being more on the venture company building side and have the pleasure of working across many companies and not just that one you know, company focus. So that's the journey. <laughs> Great, Paula. I love the detail that you went into. As you reflect on your time at Genzyme, what was it about the culture there that allowed you and I think many others to grow at such a fast pace and really dip your toe in various aspects of the business? It was a phenomenal culture. And I, I will tell you, you don't see it in many larger companies. I, mean, I hope that I replicated some of that at Exia and, and what we're trying to do at Insoma as well. The biggest thing to me was really taking risks on people. I, I think that was one of the most important things in the culture that allowed people to grow. And of course, that came directly from the late Henry Tamir, who really did take risks on people. It was never, well, you can take this job only because you've done it. There were so many things that I did and others took on for the first time. And having someone like that, like Henry, have more faith in you than you have in yourself, it's a huge support able to have something behind you that says, okay, maybe I can do this because I doubted myself a lot. I never thought that I could do things. And there were things he would say to me, well, you can do that. For example, the first time he said to me, I think you're on the track to become a general manager. I said, oh, but I have no business experience. He said, are you kidding me? You've learned more on the job because I thought I needed an MBA. He said, you've learned more on the job than you'll ever get in an MBA. And so those were the types of things that just, I think, helped me and others. But it was those stretch goals, taking what we've done in, in one place and saying, okay, you can apply it here. That first time that I went from being more engineering operations, manufacturing focused to going to the business side, it took someone's leap of faith that I can apply what I've been doing somewhere else. That probably is the biggest thing. The other one I would say 
and I hope more and more companies are getting this right, is having a compelling why. We're lucky in this industry. We all have a compelling why. I mean, human health and helping people and, you know, you meet patients and you know why you're driving uh, and working so hard. But at Genzyme, it was just ingrained in everything that we did. We all had the opportunity to meet patients and it was never you're doing this because I said so. That wasn't the type of leadership. It was more about painting the picture of what we were trying to achieve. And as an example, so when I started there, I was only a couple of years out of graduate school and I was asked to go and start up what was our Alston facility. I was I had been working on it from the engineering perspective, but not day to day. I was basically told, you need to go there and you're responsible for starting it up. I said, I don't know what that is. Is it doesn't matter. You figure it out because every day that that plant is not up and running, it's X amount of patients who won't get their drug and will die. That was my instructions. <laughs> that was classic Genzyme. And you figure it out because you have that why. And so, again, I think that as we think about this industry, inspiring people to do things that haven't been done before, having a compelling why it just, I think, allows people to move mountains. And as you look at hiring now, and I'm sure you've hired lots of folks since your time at Genzyme, how do you assess when to take a risk on someone through perhaps an imperfect and abbreviated hiring and interview process versus just going with someone who's been there and done that? Is there a framework or you know, is, it, is it mostly intuition that you use? lot of intuition, I will say. And that's one of the things over the years I have learned to trust more and more where you get a sense of, of a person. But I also think it's, you look back at their choices that they've made. And again, they may not have done exactly what the role that you're looking for, especially as we're hiring now, now being on the, let's say, private side and hiring new C-suites, and the fact that there's a shortage of talent, we're hiring people for the first time in many of these roles. What have they done in terms of their choices? And I think that is really telling. How is their decision-making and their risk-taking? Because you can find someone who's just maybe too risk-averse. Maybe they've been there, done that, but they're too risk-averse. And you're not going to move fast enough. You have to make decisions and choices. And so a lot of it is how they have made those jumps, why they left, how they actively have moved to find those new experiences in their career. That's a big piece of what, what I'm looking for, especially in first-time roles that they haven't done before. Great advice, Paula. And before we jump into what you're working on now, if you don't mind, share your perspective on the cell and gene therapy landscape, You know what's changed over the last several years, and what are opportunities and challenges that you and others in the space face? Firstly, I have to acknowledge that and recognize there's been tremendous innovation and strides that have been made in cell and gene therapy. I've been involved in gene therapy for many years. I've been on the board of Unicure. And at, at a time, it was the only company in gene therapy, the pioneers uh, in moving things forward. But now you look at how many companies in the different modalities that have come forward and the innovation in gene editing. And you know, we have Nobel Prize winning technology is astounding. The issue, though, if we think about many of these advances, is the limitation of delivery. And this isn't, you know, cell and gene. You can you can talk about RNAi, antisense, you know, the liver, for example. Okay, that's easy <laughs> in a sense. But then, what about everything else? And so, delivery is, I think, the biggest challenge in many of these technologies. And so, how do we harness 
this specificity that has been you know, envisioned or created in terms of, let's say, editing, insertion of, of new genes, but do it in a way that we can get it to more patients, address more diseases, and make it more accessible. Because again, some of these innovations, great, they'll be for the very narrow few where they can reach a specialized center or the worst of the worst in terms of a disease. And that actually is exactly what brought me to Insoma a bit over two years ago when I left Ixia, started talking to 5am ventures and they were seeding what is now Insoma. And it was the potential of what Insoma can do is what I had to be part of it. (laughs) And what Insoma is the company that is likely to be the first company who can precision engineer the hemopoietic system through at one time in vivo treatment. And this is addressing directly hemopoietic stem cells and any of the cells that derive from them like immune cells. So T cells, NK, B cells. And to be able to do that with a one-time in vivo injection changes the game. There's no myeloablation. There is no specialized centers. It can be done in an outpatient setting. And so many of the diseases that can be addressed by either ex vivo gene therapy or ex vivo cell therapy can now be delivered to more patients, more diseases. There's other aspects of our technology at Insoma that allows us to put in much larger genes, a lot of tools that allow for cell-specific promoters so that we can turn on and off our edits and insertions. And so it just opens up that door. So what I'm excited about is this, the problem that I said with the cell and gene therapy space is delivery and access. That is what we're looking to solve. And let's talk a little bit about the underlying tech at Insoma. Sure. So the underlying tech is we have designed and engineered specific vectors that are low seroprevalence, very low immunogenicity, and they are devoid of any viral cargo. So they allow significant amount of space. So to give a just a reference, we can fit 35 KB of instructions versus Lenti is about seven, AAV is about three. So much larger cargo capacity. So that allows us to put in, let's say, full gene sequences. We can multiplex. We have animal data that we've shown that we can CRISPR edit and insert a gene on the same exact vector. And, you know, there's a lot of people going after in vivo um, and it's an important next direction. And some people are looking at non-viral, you know, modalities, but those don't get into the nucleus. And so with the way we're doing, we still get into the nucleus. We have, again, modifications that are durable, and that's the important thing. So the other part of your question is, is that we think about diseases that we can address. We are starting with genetic diseases, and those genetic diseases that we'll be starting with are where bone marrow transplant, ex vivo has already proven that it can be either effective or it can be done. I'll call that low-hanging fruit because basically what we're doing is the same thing, except we're not taking the cells out of the body. We're doing it with a one-time injection. And then from there, growing the potential of the platform to more complex diseases like immuno-oncology and autoimmune diseases. And I think we're uniquely positioned because if we think about oncology and autoimmunity, those areas are not going to be solved with just one genetic modification they are too complex. And so because of the capacity that we have, we can perhaps hit multiple cells at the same time, for example, a T cell and an NK cell, or we can hit different 
direction. For example, in autoimmunity, we don't have to hit it with just a single way of doing it. So we'll build on the on the the platform, but that's where we envision starting with genetic diseases, but growing into areas of oncology and autoimmunity. And Paula, this is a bit of a tangent, but when there are so many opportunities with a specific treatment modality, any tips that you can share around indication selection? You know, you obviously don't want to boil the ocean. And so what are some best practices that you've seen in terms of indication selection, what to go after first and given the import of that first program? Yeah, I I think that is such an important question for a lot of new ventures, even ones that I'm seeing, you know, on the the venture side, where we're talking to new companies that are going after their series A or they're in seed. I think it's an important part of really the company's focus before they're securing too much funding, they have to have some sort of direction to where they're going. And a lot of it, I think, starts with, let's say, safety. Where can you show safety as quickly as possible. And so putting that lens on, is there an indication that might have a high risk benefit where, especially if you're going into humans for the first time with a modality, you can get to a proof of concept from a safety perspective quickly. The other thing is then thinking about proven biology. You have a new platform. And if you're going into uncharted territory with biology and the modality, it makes it far more risky from a regulatory standpoint, but even raising money, because that I think is going to make investors, you know, quite nervous. So is there a path where you can, there is some proven biology. And that's why I said when within SOMA, our first indications are low hanging fruit. Part of it is because we know that the modification of a stem cell in this way will cure disease. So now it's proving it with our technology. So again, starting with the proven technology. And then once you've you know, shown that, then starting to look at the complexity, especially if there's something that your technology can uniquely do that no one else can do, because that is another problem in our industries. Everybody's going after sometimes the same handful of diseases, and we have so many diseases that need to be cured and solved. And so you don't want to all run after the same one. So where can you uniquely go and create value for patients and for investors? A salient point, Paula. In terms of Insoma now, how large is the team and anything that you'd like to share with our listeners in terms of areas where, where you all need help, like for example, hiring or anything like that? Yeah. So Insoma is, uh, we're about 65 people now. We're based in Boston, have our own space and uh, really excited about the team, hopefully getting to work more and more together in person. You know, we built the company, actually it was all during COVID. So all the lab folks, of course, have to go in, but you don't have as many of the touch points, but we're getting more and more time, I think, together now, which is great. We are still in the research phase, of course. We're, we're all preclinical, and that's where the heaviest load of our, our hiring is. And we're hiring aggressively. We have an aggressive mission and plan. And you know, one of the things that's tough, I think, for all companies today is the environment in terms of talent. I think we're all going through this. It's highly competitive. There's so many new companies looking for that talent. And so, yeah, we probably need help like everybody else does in getting people in here as quickly as possible. And on that topic, Paula, of talent and the difficulty in in finding talent, I'm curious what you have observed that's changed across the talent landscape in the life sciences industry, you know, given your time from Genzyme to founding CEO at Axia and now at Insoma, 
What have you observed in terms of, because obviously there's been a, a sea change in terms of the need for talent and we're in the mm. midst of this talent crisis. Why do you think that is? And, and what do you think we can do about it? Well, I think one is that we do have, I mean, the positive is that we have a lot of company formations, a lot of investment going into biotech. We have new companies being formed. It's becoming highly competitive. One of the downfalls of that, though, I, I think we've all seen the compensation ratchet up, which is difficult, especially if you're you know, a private company and, and you're trying to compete for talent. The other thing is what I've seen is a lot of the younger folks coming into a company because they're being enticed by, let's say, these high salaries or high titles. I see a lot of title inflation and people bouncing around. I'm I'm glad we haven't seen it in, in Soma specifically, but generally in the industry, I think the notion, like I stayed 20 years at Genzyme, I don't foresee that happening very often anymore. Well, I agree. I think, I think people stay two years. And the sad thing about that is you don't have the opportunity to really develop a mentor and sponsor. I look at my career and many people who have gotten to where, let's say I have, is because of having very active mentors and sponsors. And, and that was, of course, during my formative years at Genzyme. But I, I worry that a lot of young folks won't stay around long enough and won't realize how critically important that is because it isn't about just getting the next title. It's about getting the right mix of opportunity and someone opening that door for you. So that's one thing I, I worry about because of this ease of going and moving to another company. Yeah, especially early on in, in one's career where the breadth of exposure is much more important as you try to figure out what you're going to be when you grow up, as opposed to title chasing or salary chasing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally agree. The, the, the other thing I think we're seeing in a positive way is more emphasis on diversity in management. It's been a problem for, for a very long time. When I was in my younger career, I just I was used to being the only female at the table, partly because I started as an engineer. So that was already, um, you know, there weren't as many female engineers at the time. I, I think it's very different now and not as many females in management roles. And we just don't have enough CEOs and we don't have enough women in board seats, but it's also not just CEOs. It's on the executive teams. And the focus on that, I think, is, is really important. And we're, we're seeing more focus. It isn't enough, though, to just say, okay, you need to bring on a female board member. We're not developing women at the lower level to get to some of those senior levels because the problem is that they're just not enough sitting around the table that have been given that opportunity. And some of the things that I think that need to change is helping women take on those stretch goals, the risk assignments, those sorts of things. It's at the lower levels, people doing what my managers and what Henry Tamir did for me and, and others at Genzyme was allowing that person to take on a role that they never had done before. And I don't think it's done enough. And so it isn't enough to just talk about it at the board level. You have to start a lot earlier. And, and I just don't think an, enough of that is happening. I think men by nature will take more risks. There's a lot of published literature out there that talk about how men will you know, raise their hand for a role that maybe they only have two qualifications and, and a woman who might have like nine out of 10 says, well, I'm not qualified. You know, how do we encourage more women to say, no, 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 you can do this. And that needs a lot more mentoring in lower ranks. On that point, what are some best practices or perhaps advice you have for managers in creating and fostering that 
environment of lifting women up into leadership positions? I think the biggest thing managers can do in general, and it's both men and women, is to give up more, let go more. The problem with a lot of managers is they've maybe they've just become, let's say, a manager and they're used to doing everything, being a star, is how much are they giving up so that they can let the people that work for them take on more and take on risks. And it is a problem when they feel like, well, you have to do it this way. Being okay with someone doing it a different way, having a bit of patience with that and being okay with people making mistakes. That's a big thing. If, if, if you're not okay with making mistakes, they're going to be gun shy and they're not going to try anything new. And that's where innovation stagnates. And we can't afford that in this industry. We do need people to say, I took a risk. I made the wrong decision. That's okay. What, what are we doing now with that? And that also builds resilience. That's another problem is the other issue where I'm seeing people grow too fast in roles sometimes. They haven't had those negative experiences, those wrong decisions. That's what builds resilience so that when tough times come, you have a drug, for example, that doesn't get approval. What are you doing with your organization? If you haven't ever come across a tough time, you're not going to be able to handle it. So I think managers need to be okay with their team making a mistake. And again, both men and women, but I think more so with women, just because I think by nature, we're raised to be risk averse. We're supposed to sit proper and you know look cute. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful advice, Paula. You know, on that point, as it relates to risk, there is inherent risk in drug development, right? One out of every few thousand drugs yeah. ever make it to market. Is there any advice you could provide to perhaps first-time CEOs or executive leaders in how to prepare your team for the ups and downs of drug development, yet still be motivated on program number three and four the same <laughs> way you were with program one? I think that part of it, again, goes, it's almost the, what I just said, a little bit of that is, is, is how you talk to them about the, the decision-making and, and the risk-taking and being very transparent and open with your team. If you're not very accessible and open. And then when the tough times hit, it is going to be hard for them to shift and navigate through. So I think a lot of it has to do with how you show up for your team day to day when things are going fine and really being clear and communicating again the why, the purpose of what you're doing, the purpose of these other programs too. And if they're clear on what's important for the organization, they're clear on that they'll be behind it as opposed to just being directed. They need to understand more of what's going on in a sense behind the motivation and maybe the decision-making. Sometimes, you know, leaders feel that it's not necessary for the whole organization to understand why decisions are made, but it really does matter to the team. They, They want to feel part of it and they want to be on board. And I think that comes down to really authentic leadership and you showing up as to who you are and showing the vulnerability in a sense, not to be weak. I mean, you you sometimes have to make decisions, you have to be strong about them, but really helping the team learn who you are, what motivates you and what the purpose is for what you're doing in decisions, I think is important and, and they, they will stick behind you even when you have to shift and steer towards another direction or another program. And Paula, to wrap up, I have to take the opportunity to ask, what's one piece of advice you would want to provide your younger self, knowing all that you now know? The biggest thing that I wish for myself is to actually have trusted my gut a lot earlier. 
I'd known if I've been in a situation that may maybe didn't feel right, especially let's say working with a team that's not the right team, to listen to that sooner and trust myself more. Again, it took other people who believed in me to really compel me to move in a particular direction. And so with that, it ties into another thing is the people matter so much. And I never did this. I never chased a title or a role. That was one thing. So I don't have an issue with like, oh, I regret I did something from that perspective. But I have found over the years, the team that you're working with, the people are so important. And so sometimes not moving for the right people is much better than, again, you could get that great title that next world. But if your gut says, there's something about this environment that just doesn't feel right, listen to it. I think that that really is important. And and eventually the rest will come. (laughs) Yeah. Those two pieces of advice, the trust your intuition and and the importance of team certainly resonate with me. So thank you for sharing that. Well, Paula, it was great to have you on. Thanks so much for sharing the breadth and depth of your experience. And I'm sure a very small portion of all that you've learned along the way. Thank you, Raul. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking about it. And again, look forward to uh, continuing to listen to your podcast. Thanks, Paula. Appreciate the support. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.